0: So thank you, first of all, for sitting down and talking with me. Definitely appreciate it. And I just, the first question I had is, um, why neuroscience? Why, what drew you to the field? What drives you to spend so much time and energy talking about it? Here, life? let me send
1: bother Susie. OK. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but. That's what got me into it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a class, actually. So I think my, my junior year in college, I took a class on animal behavior and neuroscience. It's the same class I teach here, so the neuroethology class. And uh, the profession was my sophomore year. And then the professor was just really passionate about it, and it was like we talked about all this stuff like, learning and memory and hunting behavior in barn owls which I ended up doing my thesis on and in you know, vision and all these things that I didn't really realize were studyable like you couldn't look at them at a single neuron level and that the circuits were completely you know studied or worked out in some cases and I was just fascinated and I changed majors after and i I went out took all the neuroscience classes I could, and then I got into a lab and we had it off for grad school but it was you know it was one really great class that changed everything yeah. you know I'd been like a I've been interested in biology since high school, but that one course like focused it on neuroscience
0: and like the it tie together behavioral behaviors
1: in yeah. biology with neuroscience? Yeah. So technology. it was, the, the course was like the neural basis of behavior. Yeah. So what can we explain about natural behaviors at the circuit level? You know, small groups of neurons. So the focus was mostly on simple systems like aplysia and for drosophila, birds, yeah. not so much on like monkeys and humans. And then later, went, you know, once I realized I wanted to do neuroscience, I took like the regular, like 313, like the regular neuroscience classes. But it was, that, it was actually that connection between the behavior and the cells, right, that really fascinated me. That like these really complicated behaviors and maybe cognition, high-level stuff, you could actually have an account that, you know, for those behaviors that was based on a handful of neurons, and you might actually be able to understand it, right? They they had seemed so, when I was taking psychology classes, those things seemed so distant and so complicated. How could you ever understand it? But actually it turned out there were cases where you could. And for me, the other thing was I'd always been kind of a computer nerd and that stuff tied in, that was like the beginning computational modeling and neuroscience was really taking off. And so on top of like just being in really fascinated by the link between neurons and behavior, it also had the possibility of linking in the computer stuff that I was interested in.
0: And you use computational modeling in your lab here yeah. at MSU. Mm-hmm. Um, and you work with vision and attention. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you have four main projects, but it's attention modulation yeah basically vehicle. a visual process- yeah
1: so how visual perception and visual circuits are modulated by behavior, and the behavior we're focused on is attention right right
0: and then how does computational modeling work and tie into that
1: so there are a couple of ways so so some of the experiments that we do have an underlying computational model, so in addition to the attention stuff, we're just interested in like how does the visual system break down complex images mm-hmm. into something digestible, right? Mm-hmm. That's something that simple neurons can actually make sense of. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these theories about what the right primitives to break a scene down into it. So is it pixels or is it lines and edges? Or should you be looking at curves or something? You know, what are those primitives? And there are all these theories and computational models that do things like face recognition or is it a dog or a cat, things like that. And they predict that the brain should do it in certain ways. So we look at the models. Sometimes we build our own models. And then we compare that to the biology. And we ask, like, so is this a good model for how the biology does it? Can we come up with a better one? So that's like on the input side, like just the visual, what are the visual primitives? And then on the attention side, there's also sort of biophysical models that have a set of equations underneath them that predict like what attention should do to any individual neuron. So, you know, if we turn up the attention or pay more attention, then does it, you know, act like a multiplier on the neuron, or is it an additive effect, or does it have some other mathematical form? And so we can collect the data from the neurons and then try to fit those different models. And those are computational models. They're simple computational models. You know, they're they're more like can we find an equation that predicts what the cells do. Not like, or right now, not like, you know, um, neural networks that's another way right? right can we train a neural network to do what the neurons do yeah. right now we're not messing with that but we we talk to people who do right.
0: and so are these variables and these you know these equations that you're developing are is it like the threshold of a neuron, or is it a latency period of firing? or It something? could be all of those,
1: right? Okay. So like, a, so one of the things, so one thing that you could do is like, so attention makes your vision more sensitive. So one way to do that would be to reduce, you know, for any given neuron to reduce the spiking threshold, mm-hmm. so that a smaller stimulus will cause the cell to generate action potentials. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's one model we could test. Another model is that we turn up the amount of transmitter that's dumped on the input cells on the synapse, presynaptic mm-hmm. side, every time a stimulus comes in, so that the depolarization's bigger, but you keep the threshold constant, mm-hmm. and that would also make the cells more sensitive. And then there, you could also change the way the voltage-sensitive channels work, so you know. Um, They open faster or open slower. All those things are possibilities. Um, And there are models for all of those, right? And uh, so some of the, you know, spiking thresholds are hard to change. Um, But things like making the cells a little bit more depolarized or adjusting the synaptic weights so that any given presynaptic uh, action increases the size of the evoked EPSP those are definitely in the models
0: is uh, summation or like that additive effect there's like temporal and spatial summation mm-hmm. is that also part of attention modulation or so is that different
1: no well so it depends so in depending on the model right you could okay. have models where if it's presynaptic then it only affects that one synapse and mm-hmm it might affect temporal summation, but not spatial summation. If it's on the postsynaptic side, then it could affect temporal summation and spatial summation. Whether that's the goal or that's sort of epiphenomenal, like you get it for free, or is another question. But some of these models definitely predict that, as say, as an artifact of making the cell more sensitive to weak stimuli, you also make the cell... Temporarily, some ate faster, so it has a faster response, and that might, you know, depending on how the model, you know, you run the math, you might find that the cell has a shorter response latency in the attentional condition, right? And that would be testable from the data. So one of the problems with all these things is that, you know, when you're working, you're working with um, primates or you know most awake animals all you really can measure easily is the action potentials, right? So you can't go in directly and measure the spiking threshold, right? And you can't directly measure the depolarization, the the membrane potential, because that's intracellular Mm -hmm. and your electrode's stuck outside the cell. And so we do a lot to sort of infer what's going on on the inside of the cell, which is what we really care about, but we can only make our measurements from the outside. And in primates, it's really hard to do intracellular recordings. Right. In mice, it's possible now. People are doing it more and more often. Um, and things like you know, optical imaging, like the kind of stuff Tom's, Tom Hughes' lab does, you know, the voltage sensors there have the potential to get sub-threshold activity readouts, and that would be really cool. But yeah. it's a it's a ways away for bigger animals.
0: Yeah, because the sub-threshold. Um, activity that's kind of like the background like what's going on before an action potential is fired through a
1: neuron and that would be the most informative information right the goal if what everybody wants is what's going on before the action potential not the action potential itself so you know everything's about can you come up with a clever way to figure out what triggered the action potential without actually seeing it Mm -hmm. and you can do that by controlling the stimulus or some kind of Modeling, right? You know, um, but that's the hard part.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of want to take a step back and talk about what is so special about V four in in the visual cortex and why study it. Like, what there's six different areas of of the visual cortex at least. More, right? Yeah, I think in
1: monkeys the number is like around, was close to forty. Yeah. Or something, right? So, um there's nothing special about B4. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, so my thesis advisor, mm-hmm. my thesis advisor, when I finished and I started looking for like postdocs, like what am I going to do next? Yeah. You know, I had all these crazy ideas and he was like, you know, you're do you like, I wanted to work on this because it sounded cool. Or, you know, it was this technique was really neat. And he's like, no, you, you got to figure out what the question you're interested in. And is, and then you just go figure, you, you, you learn the tool that's best for answering that question and you work with the animal that's, you know, best suited for that. Yeah. So, so, um, so, there are two questions there, right? So one is why do we study monkeys and why do we study V4? So um, it's hard, so in order to study attention, you need an animal where you can train them to do something uh, and be sure they're paying attention and that attention has similar effects in that animal as they do in humans, right? And you can do that with monkeys. So they show all the same sort of attentional facilitation behaviorally that humans do. They're smart enough to be trained to do, say, you know, pay attention on the left or look for red or something like that. And that's very difficult to do with mice. Mm -hmm. In fact, the first paper showing compelling evidence that you can train a mouse to do something looking like attention Came out last year, oh, wow. right? So it's been very difficult to show that human-like attention can be engaged in mice, and in mice, not every mouse can do it. So out of ten mice, you know, only seven of them may ever learn to pay attention. So
0: there's genius mice and dumb mice, pretty
1: much. That's one.
0: <laughs> one way. To the say
1: guy it. who did the work would disagree. Okay. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think that that's one. Uh, that's one account. Which is a little scary, right? Because we think of this as that either they have the brain circuit for attention or not. Mm-hmm. And that means maybe attention in mice, like they, you can train them to do it, but maybe the way they're doing it's different than in humans. Okay, so that's why I study monkeys because you can do these complicated behavioral tasks. And I didn't start off in vision, right? Mm-hmm. It's as if you're going to study monkeys, visual systems best understood and best developed, it's their best sense. Okay. And um, I started off like actually doing auditory stuff. And so I switched to vision and monkeys because I wanted to study attention. And uh, the, the aspect of attention that I was interested in is you have some neuron that does something when monkey, the monkey or the animal is doing, you know, looking for food and then it does something different when he's looking for water right mm-hmm. so something about the behavior changes the functional role of that neuron mm-hmm. and when i started this type of research v4 was the first place in the kind of ascending you know stream of information where that had been reported right so in primary visual cortex and in so v1 and v2 there was no evidence that the neurons were plastic that they could change based on what the task was mm-hmm. and then there were a series of papers starting in in the 80s showing that you know that V4 neurons in addition to being visual they were getting information about what the monkey was doing and they were changing their selectivity and their their functional properties based on moment-to-moment changes in the task.
0: So top-down modulation.
1: So it was the first, it was the earliest place in the visual system where the top-down modulation was clear.
0: Interesting. So, you know, so I want to extrapolate this and like jump to conclusions, which I probably shouldn't do, but that's basically suggesting that it could be possible for what you're paying attention to cognitively like consciously almost for a monkey Mm -hmm. can alter the the signaling firing of the neurons in in v4 and it does and it does yeah so by how much
1: well so that's that's a good question so depends on the task but not every neuron in v4 has that effect so some it's like about half depends on the experiment, but somewhere between a quarter and a half of the neurons in V4 show some kind of attentional modulation. And that means those neurons are starting to reflect your percept, but not the actual physical stimulus out in the real world. But that doesn't mean that the the other half of the neurons continue to report the veridical image. So that information is available, and... uh, yeah so i mean so so that information is um it's not lost right Right. but it's definitely altering your percept and there there are lots of cases like that and for some things that starts even earlier right so like a lot of visual illusions you know um those there are correlates of those visual illusions as early as v1 Mm -hmm. right where the v1 cells don't really report the photons entering the eye anymore but they're biased by you know something they're making some assumption about what the physical world looks like and it changes your percept so that your perception I mean, that's what a visual illusion is your perception doesn't match the veridical scene and those some of those especially for it's like brightness illusions right where you see the wrong luminance or wrong color those can start as early as v1 so, but, but in terms of top, that may not be top-down, right? That could be just the intrinsic circuitry in V1. But in V4, things are starting to be more perceptual-based. And then, you know, depending on where you look, what papers you read, by, say, temporal cortex, you know, where you have face cells and all those things, mm-hmm. those cells are starting to really report the same thing that people see, perceive, and they're getting really disconnected from the vertical environment. So, you know, um, if you're doing some task and you fail to see something that's right in front of you, you know, like the gorilla thing? Yeah. You know, so presumably in, in those types of conditions, the IT neurons in the anterior part of the temporal cortex, they may not actually fire when you see the stimulus that you ignore or that you're missing. Right, so they're starting to correlate with the behavioral percept,
0: and that's because they've been they, that's because they've been altered previously in life to focus or fire for a certain stimuli,
1: or because not necessarily in life, but basically they're um, they're being altered through top down influences, so that you have some kind of you know, say a higher level is choosing to gate out the stimuli that decides are not relevant, and so. One of the ways to think about attention is it's a filtering process. So you have a lot of stimuli coming in all the time. You can't possibly pay attention to every single one of them. It's just too much information. And so, you know, V1 tries to represent as much as it can. And V4 gates out the things that are not relevant to what you're trying to do at that moment. Right? So it may, you know, if I'm looking for my coffee cup, it may based on my prior information about what the coffee cup looks like, enhance the properties of any stimuli that are white or coffee mm-hmm. cup shaped, and it'll damp down things that look like my desk so that those things pop out, the things I care about. And so that can happen on a moment to moment basis. And say in the case of like the grill experiment, it's a higher level version of that where, you know, something you're, you're, Focused on the ball, you know, as the people are passing the ball around, and your visual system is gating out everything else at a very high level, so that you can count the number of times the ball is thrown. And as a result, you don't see the gorilla, right? So it's a gating process,
0: right? And so, like, this is the definition of selective attention.
1: Really it's yeah, it's one. I mean, it's one definition. <laughs> like, so you know, the words, gating would be implied improv- that you you filter out the things that you don't care about. You could also have selective attention where you boost the stimuli that are that you do care about. And we don't know which there, – there's evidence, like, behaviorally of both, right? So, like, you know, psychophysical experiments or in the psychology department, you can show that under circumstances you boost, some circumstances you boost, and other circumstances you suppress.
0: Right. One of the uh, things that comes to mind to me is uh, PTSD, and it's selective attention for stimuli that may match – or be present during a traumatic experience. I don't know if you... Yeah, I
1: don't know, I mean, I, in what sense?
0: So, there's been a couple papers and that I've read for classes where, um, you know, negative people with PTSD seem to have increased amygdala response to mm-hmm. negatory, like negative stimuli or even just angry faces. Yeah. Um, if they're flashed too quickly for even perception yeah compared to healthy controls, and so to me that's suggesting that there's some selective attention for something because that that brain that person's in a hyper vigilant state mm-hmm. and so they're hypervigilant and have selective attention for negative stimuli or potentially dangerous stimuli
1: yeah but, so I think and I think that that makes sense right then So the question is, so in the amygdala, so is is the amygdala driving the attention or is it receiving, you know, being modulated? And it could go either way, way. right? But um, things like that where, like, you have an increased sensitivity to things even when it's pathological or um, non-adaptive, right? You know, it doesn't always work the right way. And there are cases, like some of the stuff we've done, You know, there are cases where you can show there's attention, and the attention is in the wrong place, right? And, you know, so there may be some benefit from being able to apply attention, but the way the neurons are set up, it can lead to conditions where attention is pathological. But it works most of the time. So PTSD, you know, it's a failure, right? It's not the circuit's working correctly, but it has a negative outcome. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean it, So in now, right? So when I started this it was a long time ago, right? So attention actually does start much earlier than V four. So we now think, or let's say, some of the field things, right? So as early as V one, you can find attention effects, and some people have said even as early as the thalamus, right? So there's a lot of feedback from primary visual cortex to the LGN, and you know, one, there's a couple of groups uh, that have shown that, you know, depending upon what the monkey's doing, it can increase or decrease the sensitivity to neurons in the thalamus. And so, you know, so it's not unreasonable that really attention works everywhere now. Yeah. And we, it's just the signal's harder to see. The, early, the farther you go back, the weaker the signal is. And you have to do very, you know, you have to look very carefully to find the effects in V1. And that means it could be in the amygdala and hippocampus, in the cortex, and it's messed up in all sorts of things besides PTSD, right? So, in you know one of the models for autism, is, or at least part of the symptoms of autism is that you know it's um the top down attentional signal is too weak mm-hmm. compared to sort of bottom up attention. And that accounts for a lot of the behavior in infants and children. Um, and schizophrenics, right, show attentional deficits. Um,
0: How does ADHD play into that? Is it because their brain is just hyperactive? So or is we don't know,
1: right? So they do... So people with ADHD, by sort of by definition, have attentional, you know, deficits. They also have they have um, they're impaired on like a bunch of behavioral tasks like that are closely related to attention. So measures of impulsivity and things like that. So you know, so one thing people do is they ask people to like plan and make a, a motor act. Usually, it's an eye movement. Like so, make an eye movement to move your eyes to the left, and just before you do it, they tell you to stop it. Like on half the trials, don't do it. And so, you know, there are a whole bunch of conditions where people can't cancel the plan that they've already made.
0: Sorry, no, that's okay. You're good. But
1: oh, that's different than an isocat, which you can't change once it's begun. No, no, so it is an isocat. Okay. So what, what they're doing is, so they're saying, you know, okay, when the light comes on, track, you know, make an eye movement to the left. Once the saccade starts, you can't stop it, right, that you're right. But there's a window of time before you actually start to move it, but you're planning it or you can stop it. Right? and you can see how close to the saccade right you can get before and you can measure for say normal normal individuals like how close to the saccade you can get and still be able to cancel it and what you find is that for a lot of conditions um, the two I think it's best studied so ADHD but also in addicts mm-hmm. so drug addicts gamblers things like that they have trouble stopping the saccade right it's called a stop Stop signal task. Yeah. So you know, so you're you're looking at the computer screen, and there's like a go signal, and then you know, a quarter second later, you get a stop signal. Sometimes, and depending upon how much time has passed between the go and the stop, you may or may not be able to actually stop. And for people with ADHD and and addicts, it basically. The window is much smaller. Mm-hmm. Once you say go, they're pretty much going to go. It's very hard for them to stop. So that's thought to be something like attention, like it's prefrontal cortex, and it's involved in suppressing inhibiting responses. Yeah,
0: I was, that, I was trying to piece together. I was like, what, how do you tie addicts and 8-year-olds with ADHD together? Right. But it's, in
1: it, it's, ADHD. An, it's a failure to, of executive control, right? Yeah. And inhibition is a big part of executive control, and the sort of in some ways what it, what executive control does attention is the positive side right? where you increase sensitivity to the things that you care about and you know um, suppression of response is the inhibitory side you know you, you don't respond to the things that you shouldn't or that you don't care about and in some ways those things are intimately linked attention and response inhibition. Yeah.
0: Do you know if they... This is totally like a wild question, but do you know if they've looked at people with um, anxiety and inhibitory executive control?
1: So I'm, sh- is I'm sure... It's one of the things where I'm sure somebody has. I just don't know the literature right, yeah. well enough. Yeah. And and that it's weird, but actually ADHD, like on the attention side, it's not It's not very well studied. ADHD. Right? This is something like a friend of mine back, back east has... You know for years studied inhibition in in uh drug, drug addicts doing mri and eeg in humans and yeah. and they 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 study patients like in treatment and out of treatment ask what's different and he's also a psychiatrist and we used to always talk about so you know giving monkeys ritalin you know to mm-hmm. see what happens to their inhibitory circuits or testing, you know, say kids with ADHD on the eye movement tasks mm. that we use in the monkeys. And we just never got around to it. But there was surprisingly little done with this. But it, it, it would be really interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's another thing where, you know, in the case of ADHD, we don't really know how Ritalin or any of the ADHD treatments work. They just do. It's a, they're sort of empirical. So, you know, studying those in an animal model could be really interesting. Yeah on my list of yeah. things to think about.
0: Yeah, it seems like it would be highly beneficial and also very prevalent to everyday life. Yeah. You know? like it's I think the diagnosis needs to be finessed. And what I'm really interested in is taking neurofeedback and using it as a diagnosis tool for mm-hmm. psych- psycho like psychological illnesses. Like does someone really have PTSD or are they just like kind of like hypervigilant for a little bit or has their neurology changed and we can now define that based on a neuro, neurological
1: change. No, then that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, there there certainly is the hope with more data about each condition that it becomes, and so that's the thing, right? So if you talk about autism, it's a spectrum, right? Yeah. And so we don't know, you know, if you had infinite amount of data about brain states, then you might be able to say, well, they're not really spectrum. It's not a spectrum. They're, they're unique. They each have a unique deficit or a unique difference about their cortical circuitry yeah. that shows up either in the magnet or EEG or at the single neuron level, and we just don't have enough information. And in the case of autism, right, this is one of those things that's been a mess, right? I mean, the very little evidence of physical differences in the brains of autistic kids mm-hmm. and non-autistic kids, but and, that, and for attention, right, um, you know, it, like in infants, you can't really measure attention. Mm-hmm. And what they use is they use eye movements as a proxy for attention.
0: So, saccades. Saccades. So, yeah.
1: you can show that the pattern of saccades that uh, even a six month old baby makes um, are different if right. they're going to develop autism later. Right? So, there, there's a whole series of studies from a group at Emory and another one at Davis looking at that. So, you know, they show movies to toddlers and infants and they track their eye movements and they can show statistically that there's sort of two different patterns of eye movements and um, those, the, the non, the, you know, the, they call them typically developing kids and non-typically developing kids. The, um, the kids who have a SIB. Who's got autism, right? Ha- tend to have those pathological eye movements, wow. and so the, there is a there's another advantage of having this diagnostic tool is that you know with autism the earlier you intervene the better the outcome, right? right? So they've pushed it back to like six months. You can put the kids in front of a TV, track their eye movements, right. and you potentially have a tool for diagnosing risk of developing autism, yeah. and you can get in there and intervene with behavioral therapies as early as possible. Yeah. And the earlier you do that, the better the outcome.
0: Do infants, are infants able, like, six months, are they able to track their mothers across the room, or is that...
1: At six months, they... Yeah, so they... they the way they actually do the experiment is they show them, like, playground videos and stuff okay. that have social interactions. And mm-hmm. kids, so the TD, they're typically developing kids, they typically follow... The social cues, even at six mm-hmm. months, or it actually depends upon the age. But like the, the work I'm most familiar with, the kids are a little older than six mm-hmm. months, and they follow like if the kids are talking, they follow the social interactions. Whereas kids who seem predisposed to develop autism, they they tend to track just like motion. Their their uh, eye movements are dominated by low level cues, like anything bright or anything that has motion um, or that pops out from the background because mm-hmm. it's got a different texture. And they're they're ignoring like the high level cues mm-hmm. um, about the social interactions or, and, and some of these videos now have been stripped down to really bare bones. Like, you know, somebody playing patty cakes and, you know, normal kids watch the mouth and the eyes and the autistic kids tend to watch like the hand movements where there's actually the clap or the impact, which is not really socially relevant mm-hmm. so so those, so you can 't have them make eye movements and you don 't test them like do you recognize right. parents but they, at six months, kids do start, recognize, but you know the way these these are done you know, the original experiments you know they sit on their mom 's lap and watch a movie right right, and the moms try and hold the kids as still as possible right. <laughs> right.
0: Vanessa, of science. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's different working with kids. Right, compared to monkeys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so in the lab here, how do you how are you measuring neuronal are you doing neurophysiology or you're yeah. you're measuring action potential? Yeah, so mostly? we're
1: we're measuring action potential. So we we the, the experiments themselves we do two things. So one is we measure the behavior. Mm-hmm and try to measure the behavior very carefully, and then the second thing is to measure the neural data. So we're measuring extracellular action potentials, kind of right now one cell at a time, and mm-hmm. the new experiments we're doing now, you know, uh, if everything goes well, we'll do array recording where we drop lots of electrodes in, right. like Charlie's lab, yeah. and you know record from you know, 50 to 100 neurons at a time. But it's all extracellular. Mm-hmm. There's only actually one, one lab mm-hmm. in the US doing intracellular recordings of monkeys. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult.
0: Yeah. I was gonna ask how hard are the logistics of using monkeys as the model organisms? Like how much commitment do you have to have? How much training <laughs> has to go into? It's
1: a commitment. Yeah. Um I mean I, I think it's uh I think if you want to work on vertebrates and living animals, you have to make a commitment period, yeah. even if it's mice. Um, but the monkeys take more... There's a couple of things. So they they take more care, right? They're kind of dangerous animals. They're not domesticated animals. They're wild. They're They're bred in captivity for research, but they're feral. So they tolerate humans, but... Monkeys you know, they fight with themselves, mm-hmm. so in the wild, you know most monkeys are killed by other monkeys, and so they're they're aggressive, and you have to kind of handle them with respect. Uh, I think the hardest part is that for these high level tasks right you know so we train the monkeys to do things we're trying to train monkeys on a gambling task mm-hmm. you know where they're we're going to use. How much they bet to tell us monkeys something? Can
0: gamble. I'm sorry, like yeah, well, you can you, gamble.
1: can, you can, you can. They, they call it wagering. Okay. So you know, so you give monkeys a choice, where one of the one of the task options may be more difficult to perform, but has a potential higher reward. Whereas the other one is easy to perform, but you'll never get a big reward. You know, so the monkeys can choose which tasks they want to do, and and that tells you something about their confidence in their ability to do the task, right? And so how they they choose to wager can give you some insight into what they are actually thinking. So, you know, so to chain a train a monkey on a task like that can take a year, right? right? And so the hard part is actually figuring out how to train some train an animal to do something really complicated when you can't just tell them what to do. <laughs> right? right? You know, same thing with training a sheepdog to do something, but um, it takes time. Yeah. So it it does take a commitment. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Definitely. (laughs) It's not for everybody. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The second thing I wanted to talk about was, very briefly, if you wanted to go over the coordinate system of spatial attention... Okay. That's a very complex topic. It might be hard to do really? like
1: on verbally. So I guess the short version is that you know, we, think of, um, we think of attention as something that you pay attention to a thing out in the environment. Like before I was talking about my coffee cup. So the coffee cup has a single fixed location in the environment at any given time you move around all the time your head turns your eyes move all this stuff and that means that that coffee cup is changing its position on your retina Mm -hmm. right so different neurons in the brain encode the coffee cup from moment to moment but we all can always pay attention to that same object right whether it's a face or a coffee cup or it doesn't matter and so at a very high level, it feels like attention is directed to things regardless of where, what our position is relative to the thing. Mm-hmm. So you can think of that as sort of world-based coordinates. right? right. So um, as long as the object stays at the same location in the world, you can pay attention to it in, as you move around. Um, but there's not very many, there's not any evidence or really strong evidence of any areas in the brain except the hippocampus, maybe, that have world coordinate maps, right? So most areas like, say, primary visual cortex, if you move your eyes, a different set of neurons in primary visual cortex is going to represent that object. And that's because the map in primary visual cortex is retinotopic. It's getting a, you know, labeled line, point-to-point input from the eyes. And if the eyes move, the camera moves different pixels in the eye, and therefore, different neurons in V1 now see the object. Mm-hmm. Okay, so every map that we know of in the visual system is retinotopic. Nonetheless, we can pay attention to things in these world coordinates. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so somehow the brain does the transformation from retinotopic maps to a world coordinate. Type of representation. It's not a map, but some kind of representation, and we don't really understand that. But you know, we know we know something like that is going on, right. because you know, when you reach out and touch something, you're you're basically using a world coordinate system and or motor coordinate system, right. and that magic happens somewhere between visual cortex, like an occipital lobe and parietal cortex where it starts to become more of a motor map. So one of the things we're interested in is how does that happen and also when, right? And you know what the lab we spent a long time studying uh, was like when does that transformation take place? When do you compensate for the eye movement? And in the case of eye movements it turns out the system's predictive. So, So if you're paying attention to something on the left and you turn to the left, so that that thing is now dead ahead or on the right. Then the attentional benefits in the brain shift to the new retinotopic part of the map, where right where the object is going to be. And they do that in anticipation of the movement, like before you turn your body or you move your eyes. They the attentional facilitation picks up and moves to a new part of the brain a couple hundred milliseconds before you actually make the action wow. so it's called predictive coding and there's a lot of predictive coding in the brain right um you know that's how batters swing at a 90 mile an hour fastball you know they're they're using information about the release of the ball and the timing of the of the pitch in order to predict when the ball will be over the plate and they anticipate and they swing the bat you know or tennis players So there's lots of predictive coding in the visual system. But what's not been shown until recently is that attention is also predictive. So if you're attentionally tracking the ball, your attention can move to where the ball will be so that when the ball comes through or over the plate, it's in the right place at the right time. Wow. Yeah, so that's one of the things. Not working on that right now, but before I came here, that was like the last big project I did before I moved. Wow. My lab, and we'll pick it up again. <laughs> we'll pick it up again eventually, but yeah. um it, it's actually the next steps for that are we did everything in, in visual cortex in ventral stream because we we're interested in attention and before, but we'd also like to know how the parietal cortex is involved because we think parietal's the one that's actually doing the prediction mm. because it's all it got all the information about you know the where part of the signal. So where is the ball? Where your eye is going to move? You know all those things, and you need that information to to change the attentional representation of E4. So we'd like to do the same types of experiments, but record in parietal cortex instead of occipital cortex.
0: Right, because if those, if it doesn't, if attention doesn't match up with vision or with the parietal, you'll you'll miss your target. Yeah,
1: or you'll be attending to the wrong thing. Yeah. 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 That's another big sort of big picture question about attention is we know a lot about the effects of attention so when you pay attention what happens to a neuron V4 studied to death yeah. but we don't really understand where the attentional signal like who's who's saying now pay attention to Waldo or now pay attention to red things we don't know who the driver is it's not V4 you know uh, V4 is the the target of that neuromodulation but it's not does not seem to be in charge and two candidates are parietal cortex and frontal cortex or and there's a few people who would say superior colliculus. but basically frontal cortex or parietal cortex and so doing the same experiments that we do in v4 but now in parietal cortex or frontal cortex could be really informative yeah. about determining who's in charge yeah that's that's
0: fascinating that's really interesting um well Thank you so much okay. for sitting down and spending forty five <laughs> minutes and talking to me. I yeah, really sure. I Hope
1: that was useful. Yeah, definitely. Helpful. Okay.
0: My last question: um, If there's, you know, if there's a, a student that is interested in neuroscience, um, or you know, students who are already in the field, what's what's a good book or research paper that you would suggest they read? Oh,
1: that's a tricky question. <laughs> it, it's such a big field. I'm not oh. sure there's one. One book. Um,
0: what was perhaps the most influential
1: for you? Uh, it's kind of dated. So you know, <laughs> so uh, you know, certainly as far as textbooks go. I mean, so I when I took that neuroethology class, like you know, sophomore year in college, you know, week into the class, I had read the whole textbook. I was really because I was just like everything was really unbelievably cool, um, and it there was. This really good book on neuroethology by a guy named Jeff Kamai, who was one of the sort of founders of the field. Um, I'm trying to think like really good science books. Uh, so, another book that was sort of influential for me like that. So, there's a book by Gordon Shepherd called okay. The Synaptic Organization of the Brain. The current version is a little bit more textbook like. Okay. Um, but the original version was um, just you know just like a regular book. It wasn't th- like a not exactly a pop side book, but like for science geeks. Okay. And he went through a bunch of different sensory systems, like olfaction and vision, and he looked at common themes, like so, you know how does what are the problems each one of these senses is trying to solve, and what's common about how the neurons do that in each area. And he tried to identify like fundamental principles that the brain uses to organize sensory processing. And uh, that was really influential. You know, I went back to that over and over again, looking for ideas and trying to like relate the stuff I was learning in grad school back to, you know, sort of bigger picture type questions. So yeah, it's called... Synaptic organization of the brain—that's a good one. Awesome. If you can find an old edition, even better. Okay. Um, but um, yeah, I'm trying to think—it's a hard question. <laughs> I know, <laughs> if I, I think I of something else, I should've, I should've I'll email you. <laughs> if I think of something better, okay. For, but it depends on what people are interested in. Yeah. You know, if people are interested in vision, you know, there's another book that's sort of like synaptic. Uh, organization the brain um, there's this guy at MIT named David Marr who is sort of the founder one of the very earliest computational neuroscience people he died very very young um, in his 30s but was like this superstar like you know rock star of science and math and he he wrote a book called vision where he outlined like you know what the problems the visual system is trying to solve and how we should go about studying it. And it's not a textbook, it's just, a, it's an easy read. And a lot of the ideas he had turned out to be just um, really good principles for thinking about science and doing experiments and identifying levels of extra- abstraction, that's his big thing. You know, you have to separate you know, the hardware, like you know what the eye is doing from like, the features that the visual system is trying to extract and what the problem the visual system is trying to solve is. And you have to study all three of those levels at dif- you know, differently. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, David Marr.
0: David Marr, vision.
1: Yeah, vision. Okay. Well,
0: thank you so much. Sure. We appreciate it. <laughs>